0: This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic
1: and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Pagli in Stockholm, Sweden. I hope you're safe wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you have the chance, we'd really appreciate if you give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, subscribe to Polar Geopolitics on your favorite podcast platform. Here in episode 25, it's the second part of the interview with Elon Kelman, Professor of Disaster and Health at University College London. We'll be talking about coronavirus diplomacy in the context of the Arctic. And by the way, if you want more perspectives on the COVID-19 outbreak, check out my other podcast, Corona Crisis Once Upon a Pandemic, where we explore the coronavirus from many different perspectives and discuss how it's rapidly changing the world we live in. Later in this episode of Polar Geopolitics, we'll be hearing from polar historian Peter Roberts, who'll provide us with another offbeat anecdote from the polar past. This time, about the doomed attempt to introduce penguins into Norway. But first, here's Elan Kilman, who recently wrote an article on China's coronavirus diplomacy, applying that perspective here to the geopolitics of the Arctic. So what I've
2: looked at with respect to coronavirus diplomacy is a disaster diplomacy perspective. And we've been looking at how dealing with disasters before, during, and after does and does not impact peace, conflict, war, and diplomacy. So a pandemic comes along. It is obviously transboundary, and we see a lot of countries which have political disagreements and often violent conflict being affected. So could it be that coronavirus diplomacy then brings these countries together? In particular, Iran has been one of the worst affected countries so far by coronavirus diplomacy and is not on friendly terms with many other countries. Meanwhile, the other isolated country is North Korea. And North Korea very quickly shut its borders, which included with its ally China. So it has been even more cut off than usual. And we've not actually so far seen many doors opening to North Korea or Iran through disease diplomacy, through coronavirus diplomacy. So China, where the virus originated and one of the worst countries affected also, but at the moment it appears to have the epidemic in China under control to some degree, China has also been questioned about how its relations with other countries may be affected. And in the end, a lot of what we are seeing is very much standard disaster diplomacy conclusions that disease, epidemics, pandemics, other forms of dealing with disasters do sometimes have a short-term influence on ongoing diplomatic negotiations or ongoing conflicts. But we've yet to find a very clear example where a health-related concern or disaster-related concern forged new, lasting, legitimate connections amongst countries or amongst other political entities. So what does this mean for China and the Arctic? And to a large degree, it will do what many other disasters and many other epidemics have done previously. Once a political or diplomatic pathway is selected, which might be more conflict, it's not necessarily less conflict, it might be actually ramping up conflict. Once that pathway has been selected, politicians, diplomats, governments seem to be very adept at taking contemporary events and morphing them into a pathway which supports what they want anyway. So China for a long time has been promoting itself as an Arctic country. It has looked at creating the polar silk road, trying to ensure that Uh, railways and to some degree air routes and shipping routes serve its own interests to connect it to the Arctic. If they decide, they can absolutely use coronavirus as an excuse to push that forward. Do they have the opportunity? I mean, that's really the open question. What can they do with it? What should they do with it? What sort of pushback might there be if they try and go in the wrong way and go too far? Conversely, if perhaps certain countries are looking for an excuse to limit China's influence, and to stop China making those connections to the Arctic, maybe the travel restrictions are their excuse to try and stop that railway being built, to try and stop that deep water port being built, to try and stop the business interests from China getting into the Arctic and doing much more work there. So coronavirus diplomacy so far has really shown the same patterns with respect to China and with respect to other countries there are certain political interests out there. A lot of people are very much interested in the Arctic, particularly regarding transportation routes and resource extraction. And if they can find a way to make this pandemic serve these interests, they absolutely will. Conversely, those who may be concerned about China's Arctic policy and actions and the actions and policies of other countries with respect to the Arctic, whether it's India or Singapore or South Korea, then they may also try and use the current restrictions in the current situation in order to put up barriers and to limit the interests of others. In the end, though, once we do get this pandemic under control, whether or not it fades out over a couple of years or a decade, eventually other interests will take over and people will be much more keen to pursue what they want in the Arctic anyway without worrying about the pandemic which struck the world one year ago or 10 years ago.
1: Of course, it's very early to make any sort of uh, assessments or predictions, but do you see this uh, coronavirus diplomacy of China, do you see it having any buy-in at this point, or do you see mostly pushback, or or is it just too early to tell at this point?
2: In terms of buy-in and pushback, I think the countries and the entities involved are simply going to pursue the agenda which they want anyway. So there's a lot of people, a lot of businesses, a lot of governments who very much have buy-in. China has very clear approaches to the Arctic, and is absolutely pursuing their own interests for that. There are others who are trying to push back. So it's not just about being against China, it's being against many other external influences, particularly when it's not clear that those external influences are really going to serve the Arctic peoples and the Arctic communities. So this can very much be an excuse to say, oh, hang on a minute, we know there are restrictions now, we know there may be substantive changes in how we deal with the world economy, so maybe this is our chance to put the brakes on external interests getting into the Arctic or at least to have more control over them or to slow down the pace. So I would see that depending on who it is and their interests, there will be some who are going to use coronavirus as an opportunity to push forward with opening up the Arctic and having others get in there. And those others who are concerned about that approach will absolutely use this as an opportunity to push back and to stop those interests taking over what is in effect their land, their communities, their resources.
1: So you see the situation as being more something that will be used instrumentally by certain actors that have pre-existing agendas as opposed to a sort of a fundamental rethinking of uh, what, uh, what the future of the Arctic should be.
2: Given that we are not certain how long the pandemic is going to last, and given that we are not certain how many mutations of the virus will occur and how many future epidemics or pandemics will happen, and whether or not they'll be able to be controlled by a vaccine, then it's completely open. So after the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks, there was a lot of commentary about this has changed the world. This is going to change air travel. This is going to change how we do business. And in the end, it didn't. In fact, there was a huge expansion of aviation. There was very much the advent of budget airlines, who, and different business models for dealing with tourism, dealing with business, dealing with air travel. And that continued to expand. That continued to go along the pathways according to what the businesses want, worrying a lot less about possible terrorist attacks. Even the shooting down of civilian airliners did not fundamentally change what people were interested in with regards to flying, nor did the Icelandic volcanic ash crisis, and before and after several other volcanic ash situations which changed flying routes and which changed where planes could operate. So yeah, it is certainly possible that coronavirus leads to a fundamental shift. But ultimately, where people have business interests and are pursuing their agenda, they're going to seek any excuse to continue pushing that agenda. What this means for the Arctic is that it's really up to the people with the power and the resources. So are we going to see many more transpolar flights making use of that route as we see rejigging of the airline businesses, the airline companies, as we see a rejigging of how takeoff and landing slots are allocated, as we see a rejigging of the pricing structure and the budget airlines compared to non-budget airlines? There's always been an agenda for flights within the polar region. So, trying to get larger airports around the Arctic, and rather than having to change at hubs, going directly between different Arctic points. Again, those interests exist. They are going to try and use this opportunity to push this agenda, while others who want to continue the hub model or are not very interested in more and more transpolar flights may push back. So, people are very good and very talented at saying, well, this is my interest, I'm going to push for it no matter what. Will this fundamentally change the Arctic? I hope that that's up to the Arctic people to make that decision. What I fear is that the Arctic has for too long been created by agendas from the South, has too long been formed by colonial and post-colonial approaches, and I would hope that there would be something which may change that in order to give the Arctic peoples and communities far more power over their own interests and far more resources to pursue their own interests.
1: I mean, of course, there's many different scenarios in the Arctic, many different locations. Uh, Of course, there's commonalities between a lot of these communities, and a lot of these uh, subregions. But one in particular that I think is particularly relevant for this choice of future pathways is uh, Greenland. Do you see any particular challenges for Greenland on on the sort of the the more geopolitical level through this coronavirus crisis and how that might shape uh, Greenland's independence, Greenland's uh, relationship with China, with the United States uh, and other players in the Arctic?
2: From my perspective as an outsider, I probably see Greenland's greatest challenge as trying to come together as a country and as a people in order to move forward on a very clear pathway. So there are a lot of cultural and political tensions within the country between those who are Indigenous and those who are non-Indigenous, between those who are born in Greenland and those who are not born in Greenland, between the different regions, between those who have very common interests and definitely support each other, that disagree on independence. So the real challenge is how do they come together as a very small country, a very small population with incredible diversity and also quite large area and many small isolated communities without very good transport links, how do they come together and really make a decision which serves themselves and hopefully as many of them as possible. So it is not easy when everyone knows each other. And when it is a small community with many tight connections, but there are fundamental political disagreements, how are those decisions made? How do we help those who are unhappy or who disagree? Is 50% plus one, or even two-thirds majority, really appropriate? When there are many outside interests for living there and working there, including countries as well as individuals, How does that relate to what Greenlanders and the different types of Greenlanders want for themselves and want to pursue it? So there's really no one solution. There's no ideal pathway. For me, the challenge is trying to make the decision on how to make decisions and to ensure that there is a clear, transparent, and appropriate process forward for Greenlanders themselves deciding what they want to do they want to be involved with and what they're seeking for their own country, whether it's independence, different from the sovereignty, or other connections to the wider world.
1: That was Elon Kelman, Professor of Disaster and Health at University College London. And now it's time for Peter Roberts to tell us why transplanting penguins to Norway maybe wasn't such a great idea.
0: Summer 1938, not much is happening in Norway. A newspaper headline screams the penguin is to become a Norwegian bird. What on earth was going on? Strangely enough, an attempt was underway to settle penguins in Norway. Now, why would anyone want to do that? The idea actually had a longer history. In the early 20th century, there had been successful attempts to move reindeer from the Arctic to the island of South Georgia in the far South Atlantic Ocean. The reindeer at first found it a little bit hard to get on, but very quickly they adjusted their breeding cycles to being in the Southern Hemisphere and they began to thrive. So the optimistic thought set in. What else could we move between the two polar regions? There were ideas of moving fur seals, economically valuable animals that by that time had been hunted almost completely to extinction. And then there were penguins. But what is the point of having penguins in Norway? The idea initially seems to have been that it would just be nice to have penguins around. Surely Norway would be better with penguins than without them. The moving spirit behind the idea was a geologist and a bureaucrat, Adolf Hall, the General Secretary and later the President of the Norwegian Society for the Conservation of Nature. You might think it's a funny sort of believer in the conservation of nature who wants to introduce penguins to a radically different ecosystem. But Hall didn't see it quite like that. He actually used the word operike to enrich in describing the effect that the penguins would have on Norway. The first attempt began in 1936. Nine king penguins in total were taken from the Antarctic and settled. Five in Finnmark in the north of Norway and a further four further south. It didn't go so well. The penguins quickly got away and the experiment was declared a failure. Undeterred, Hall wrote to his contacts in the British Colonial Office and asked if he could get a few more king penguins to try again. And he received the very straightforward answer, why don't you try with some of the smaller ones first, and if that works, we'll revisit the question of larger penguins. He manages to get his hands on a further 60 small penguins, split between Cape, Rockhopper and Macaroni penguins. And they're settled on the island of Rust, at the very far southwestern end of the Lawforten Island archipelago. Røst in the late 1930s was a difficult place. The Lofoten archipelago as a whole had been affected by the long-term decline of the Lofoten fishing industry, and local economic opportunities were hard to find. An enterprising local by the name of Helje Helgesen had come up with numerous ideas for stimulating local industry, from potentially processing seaweed, through a tourist station where tourists could come and spot the amazing birds, Røst being home to one of the strongest bird-nesting areas in all of Norway and possibly also freezing facilities so the fishing industry could be more competitive. Unsurprisingly, he was a very willing local partner for the penguin experiment. It's not quite true to say that no one was aware that these could possibly have deleterious ecological consequences. At least one person wrote into the newspaper and said, wouldn't it be just like the rabbits in Australia? They'll run wild. They will breed like crazy. They'll get in the way of the fishermen's nets, and you'll have no idea what happens next. To which Hall's response, off the record, was, well, they can't fly, how bad can it possibly be? He needn't have worried. The experiment, again, did not go quite so well. The only record I've managed to find of any economic benefit from the penguins is when there was an attempt to sell the netting that kept them in. The penguins, some of them sickened, some of them got away, and some of those that got away met a sticky end, including at least one that was killed by a local, who, completely surprised by this strange and possibly even devilish apparition, killed it and later exclaimed that they thought they had seen the devil itself. And such was the end of the experiment. What's its legacy for today? It's very easy to draw simple cautionary tales, I think, about exactly how careful we should be in transplanting animals from one ecosystem to another even two that are as apparently analogous as the Arctic and the Antarctic. The Norfolk Archipelago is, after all, very different from any part of the Antarctic, even the Antarctic Peninsula. But there's a bigger lesson too, I think, in the way that our attitudes to conservation and the order of nature have changed. Today, I think we would never dream of introducing penguins in to even the richest avian ecosystem, on the grounds that it might be very nice as it is, but surely to be even better with penguins. One more thing for the tourists to come and look at. I think with good cause, we'd be very careful about introducing such animals, not least because by introducing a thing that could attract more tourists, we might undermine the ecosystem that exists and thereby diminish the very thing the tourists have come to see. That's a lesson that we might have learned the hard way in Law Fortin, but it was not to be. The experiment was a failure and lives on as a historical footnote, but a very interesting and perhaps even an educational one.
1: That was polar historian Peter Roberts. He'll be back with more offbeat anecdotes from the polar regions in the episodes to come. You can subscribe to the Polar Geopolitics podcast on most major platforms, including Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and Acast. Check out our website, polargeopolitics.com. Get in touch by email, polargeopolitics.podcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Polar geopol. Music by Mark Vandenbosch voiceover, Keith Foster. Logo design by Daniel Brockman. My name is Eric Paglia. Thanks for listening to Polar Geopolitics.